So my guest today, Morgan Jerkins, is a journalist and author, editor, and professor at Columbia University here in New York City. Her debut essay collection, a book called This Will Be My Undoing, exploded into the public consciousness last year, becoming an instant New York Times bestseller. She writes with this raw sense of transparency and a fierce sense of self-examination and revelation, sharing really deeply personal, provocative stories and moments and reflections that often center around her experience as a woman of color, around intersectionality, feminism, the writing life, and the world of publishing, which was part of our conversation, gender and race, and so much more. Morgan has also been featured in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Esquire, Rolling Stone, all these other awesome places. This conversation was deeply powerful, opened my eyes, opened my heart, opened my mind on so many levels, both after reading her words in um, her book and also in sort of deconstructing both the language, the stories, and the experiences that led to these essays and so much more. Really excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. show is sponsored by meditation app 10% Happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions, and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. I'm fascinated by people's writing processes because it's so different for so many people. It's like, I, I'm a writer. I've known so many writers. And I, I literally read a story about a guy once who did all of his writing at a diner. Uh-huh. The diner burned down. Uh-huh. He couldn't write. Mm-hmm. So he literally had a, like a version of the diner recreated in his backyard. <laughs> Oh. So he had his plate, like he could only write at, at that one booth in this one diner. So he literally had that one booth rebuilt. But how is that sustainable? I don't know. <laughs> I, wow. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. At the, in, in New York, do you write in, in your place all the time? You yes, like, I do not. You're not a cafe writer. No, like it, it, de- like it depends. Like, let's say if I have a meeting at noon yeah. and it's down a certain way. I like to work out in the morning. So like, if there's like a couch in like two hours, I'm like, I'm not just going to go back uptown. Then I'll bring my laptop with me and I'll try to do work. But generally speaking, I do not work in cafes or anything like that because first it's like, I think about the little things. When I need to use the bathroom, I'm going to trust somebody to look over yeah, my not stuff. In New York City. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And also just the noise. I like to be able to control control the noise. And when you have espresso machines or people conversing all the time, it's hard. And also the chairs aren't really comfortable a lot, you know? So 
Yeah, no, I totally hear you. I've experimented mm-hmm. with all the different things. Yeah. Um, I kind of go back and forth depending on the mode of writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when did you, so as we're sitting here today in the studio, mm-hmm. um, we're in New York City. You had a debut book come out last year at this point while we we're recording this, which we're going to go into uh-huh. a whole bunch. You grew up just outside of the city. New Jersey. Well, South Jersey. Oh, okay. So I was near Atlantic City. Like I grew up oh, in South the southern, yeah. southernmost tip of New Jersey. Yeah. What was it like? It was nice, but it's interesting because I mythologized New York so much. I mean, I, I grew up in a very closer community where people usually stayed in South Jersey. Mm. Um, they probably didn't go any farther than like Philadelphia. And they, if they did go farther, they would just come back. You know, like what get their feet wet in another town and come back. So it was nice there. It was, you know, it was it was cool. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't anything that interesting, but I try to talk about it more because I guess that informs who I am as a person. Yeah, well, I mean, clearly, because you, you write about certain moments um, yeah. in a really powerful way mm-hmm. and how transformative mm-hmm. they are. And I mm-hmm. want to dive into some of those. Uh-huh. Um, I'm curious also, before we get there, when you have such a devotion to the craft, you know, well, to, to of writing right now, how early can you trace back? Like, did that start to show up in the earliest days for you, or was it later? Oh, it, was, it depends on what you mean. Because yeah. I would say later, but then I'm only 26. Right. So, when I first started writing, it came out of a place of desperation. Hmm. I thought that I wanted to be a doctor. My father is a doctor, and he owns a medical business all throughout New Jersey. So I, I was trying to be the heiress apparent, and um, it wasn't until my freshman year of high school where I was being bullied every single day, as I, you know, detailed in my book, that I was trying to find an outlet through which to vent. I wasn't the type of person who would just express myself whenever I was going through something negative. And so I just started writing these fictitious stories, creating these characters and creating these new worlds um, within which I can find solace. But I wasn't even a person who liked literature like that. Mm. I, it was it, it felt like a total freestyle. And it wasn't until, so I was writing all throughout high school, all throughout college. And it was more like therapy for you. It was therapy, yeah. really. Um, and so it wasn't until, you know, towards the end of college when I didn't get a job in publishing like I expected. Um, my mother was like, well, why don't you apply to MFA program? My late stepfather was a veteran and they had this program where they would provide monthly stipends to those who did grad school. And my mom's like, you know, my mother, she's in real estate, but she's also into finance. Mm. And we used to watch Susie Orman together on Saturday nights. And she was like, Morgan, this is free money. Like, you don't understand how many people in this country, in this world would take this opportunity. And I was like, fine. Begrudgingly, I applied to one school. And one of the reasons why I applied, well, a couple of reasons why I applied was because, were because uh, the GRE, uh, I didn't have to take it, deadline didn't pass. And it was also low residency, which mean that I, which meant that I didn't have to be on campus full time. Mm-hmm. And so I applied to Bennington College in Vermont and I expected to not get in and I did. And it was there that I learned about craft, tone, syntax, uh, development, uh, developmenting plots, narrative momentum, all of these different things. And I don't think I'd, I'd be able to find that elsewhere. Yeah. It's so interesting, the, 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 like, the things that lead us like, to those experiences, which flip a switch, right? Right, right. I, had no, I, I only applied to appease my mother, and I expected a rejection so I could just wave it in her face. I'm yeah, like, yeah. here, here you go. <laughs> Check that box. Yep, yep. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm just going to go do my own thing. And then when they called me and I got in, I was like, oh, well, then that just changes everything. Yeah. When you got there, how long did it take to actually for you to realize like, oh, 
this is actually something that like is doing something to me? Oh, that's a great question. I think it was my second term. So we do it in terms. So I think yeah. I came in June. That was the first term. My second term was it was January of 2015. And I was writing this story and it was about, it was writing a novel and about two or three drafts in, my advisor said to me, she would say, you're not writing in your voice. Hmm. She said, you're not, you're not writing in your voice. So why don't we just table this novel and you start again? And I had never had someone say that to me. Did you understand what she meant? Yeah, I knew exactly what she meant because all my life I have been trained to I would say ventriloquize the voices of white men, dead white men. And so for this white woman to tell me that, I'm like, where else can I go? I wasn't really taught or encouraged to write like myself. And so that was the turning point in the program where I needed someone to speak that plainly and say, no, we're just going to get rid of this whole thing. You're going to start anew. I don't even want you to revise it. Yeah. When that moment happens and you start to write in your own voice then? I mean, did you immediately start to write in your own voice or did it actually take some work to get back to it? Um, I think when I, I still remember when I opened the email, I just sat at my desk, like stupefied. Yeah. I was just like, I wasn't offended. I was just, I just felt seen. And I thought about, you know, the Toni Morrison quote about, you know, if, if you know, if there's not a book out there that you, that you haven't seen, like yeah. you should write it. And I was like, I think I do. I know what I want to write about. Um, and so I just went from there. It didn't take a lot of time to think of ideas. It was just finding my voice to write said ideas, and therefore the authenticity would come out. Yeah, and but this was still fi- um, fiction focused. This was fiction, right? and it was interesting because around that time I was writing professionally online with nonfiction. Right. And I was developing my voice there, but for some reason, it wasn't immediately translating into fiction because when I was doing, when I, I was studying comparative literature in college. I was studying fiction and I wasn't reading people that looked like myself. Yeah. So you mentioned also undergrad. Um, so you ended up in Princeton. Mm-hmm. Study language, right? Yeah. What What's the Jones around language for you? I'm just a nosy person. <laughs> I never wanted to be, I never wanted to grow up in this world being monolingual. I didn't. I've always wanted to be versatile. I don't know if it's because I'm a Gemini or I don't know if it's just because, I don't know what it was. Like I remember... When I was younger, I, I took I had to take mandatory a mandatory Spanish class in grade school, and I really was into it. And I remember uh, I would watch telenovelas, and I would put the caption on, and I would learn all this new vocabulary. I'm kidding. Yeah, I would learn all this new vocabulary. And when I would, it was funny because I would go to choir practice at church, and I'm like, "Ma, can you please record this? I need to watch this episode." And my mother saw how much I was progressing, and she was like, "Well, I'm just going to get you a private tutor because you just you you, you want to go quicker with this, and you're going through your homework at school too quickly." So. I've been told uh, by former instructors that I think you have a gift for language because it's not hard for me to, it, it's hard, but it's, I can pick up languages really quickly. And that's something that I just don't take for granted. I just hope to keep nourishing that skill for the rest of my life. Yeah. Cause you speak what, four or five languages? Four, like five, five foreign languages. Yeah. Right. Um, is part of that related to a desire to travel at all? I'm curious. Oh yeah. Always. Yeah. yeah. Because I think what, you know what, it's interesting that you bring that up because I remember, and I think I spoke about it, I wrote about it in my book. The first time I went to Japan, it was with a a, a program called People to People. Mm. And it was like a student ambassador program. And you would go to a country for like two weeks and, you know, explore everything. 
And I was with a majority white group um, of Pennsylvania kids. And they were a lot of, they were just, a lot of them were just jerks. They really were. And they, you know, they went into this country with the expectation that people were going to speak English. And, you know, they made fun of the people that tried to accommodate them. And it really does, did something to me even back then, because I was like, how can I go to somebody's country and expect them to speak my language? Like, mm-hmm. I should be trying to figure out certain phrases like them, you know? And the fact that, like, it wasn't it wasn't a part of our preparation, because we had to do these preparatory workshops on it where we went to Japanese restaurants. It was like, you didn't even, you didn't make it mandatory for us to learn even simple phrases. It bothered me. So I was like, I want to learn languages, you know? Yeah. It's almost like a, like a a respect thing. It is. It's like how, you know, there's almost a certain amount of, I I often wonder this about Americans in general, because we've got to be one of the few countries where it's not really... We, you know, we all speak English. Um, we try. I <laughs> hear. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and, and, you know, you can kind of sneak by most schools having to learn a second language. Yeah. But most people graduate high school really not Absolutely. being able to speak another language. Absolutely. But I the mean, rest of the world is like right. pretty much studies multiple languages. Right. I mean, when I was in Japan for the second time and I was doing this internship at Temple University has a satellite school in yeah. Tokyo. And every so often our, our coordinator would have these like lectures and all that. And they invited someone over um, for us to have like dinner before the lecture. And and one of the the men, he was like Hungarian. And someone was like, yeah, he speaks like five languages. And he said, it's a matter of fact. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. They were like, he's European. Europeans on average speak about two do. to three. Right. And I was like, and he didn't say to him to me, but I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah, I'm American. So it's like, not, yeah. it's not the same. But I wonder also just like what it does to our brain. Because I, I sometimes wonder, it's not just the language. It's like, okay, so if you get fluent enough in another language, then you start to sort of um, code switch a, a bit with your thinking too. Absolutely. It's very hard because it feels like, imagine going into an attic or you're going into a wall yeah. and you got to fix cables and you really don't know which one does what. And you're just kind of like, grabbing, you know, your appliances and trying to like, try to take this one out or, oh, that changed. No, no, no. So sometimes I'll be writing something. I'll be like, I can't, there is no word that adequately fits what I'm trying to say in the English language. It doesn't feel right rhythm wise. It doesn't, it doesn't even sit right in my mouth, but if it were in Japanese, it would be perfect. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And I'll be like, but I can't say that. Like, I can't say, so So I I have to find a medium. I'm just going to have to, you know, find an inferior alternative. Yeah. Do you ever get tempted to just like drop a foreign word? <laughs> Sometimes I <laughs> want to, yeah. but I'm like, first of all, I'd be pretentious on the right. page. But, but yeah, there'll be times where I'll be writing and I'll be like, I'll be saying it in my head as I'm writing and and the Japanese word will just like bloop, drop. And I'm like, you can't say that. But it's like, it just, it fits so well. You know, and it's like, well, what do I do? In fact, that might be a good essay to write. Like, what do you do when you know multiple languages and you realize that writers already, I think a lot of writers I talk to, they have a problem with like, you have it in your head, but sometimes when you write it on the page, something gets lost. So you have yeah. to sort of contend with that. But when you know different languages, it you, def- you feel like you're dealing with a series of losses as you're trying to gain insight by documenting whatever it is that you want, that you're trying to do on the page. Mm. Yeah. It's a matter of net positives and, you know, negatives and all that. It's yeah. Like, no, I mean, you just threw something out, which was interesting to me also, which is that you don't want to be perceived as a pretentious writer. Yeah, no. What's the, is is that a, a, 
a frequency or like thing that spins in your head while you're writing? And, yeah. And be- if so, I'm curious, like what's behind right, that? Right. Because I remember when I first got into the, well, people started knowing me professionally. Like I definitely boosted the fact that like, I knew all of these languages. Yeah. And, oh, I think it kind of rubs certain people the wrong way. Um, the way that I was just trying to boost like how exceptional I was. And I kind of sort of succumbed to that when I was like, you know, maybe I should, even on my website, like I don't say on my website anymore, like, hey, I I speak five languages. I'm just like, if you ask, I'll tell you. But, you know, I don't want to be seen like, because, you know, already it's like people already know I went to Princeton. And even that to this day, when people ask me where I would go to school, I'm always hesitant to say because of what it evokes Hmm. when you say things like that. Um, Snobby, you know what I mean? Um, Uppity, pretentious. If you say you're Ivy League, to some people, not all people, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too, because, so you came out of Princeton mm-hmm. and like you shared, one of the reasons that you ended up going to Bennington, aside from just like telling your mom I could check mm-hmm. that box, mm-hmm. is you were struggling to actually find work mm-hmm. out of Princeton, oh, which a yeah. lot of people would be like, wait a minute. And I tell people you, that is, all the isn't time. Isn't that the golden ticket? And I'm going to end that. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I'm going to talk about that until, you know, I just cease to exist on earth because- you know, I was told in college that in order to to gain entrance into the publishing industry, and I'm talking about just an editorial assistant, you have to do unpaid internships. So already, you know, you can just imagine how many students are eliminated off of that alone. I was able to do it because I didn't have student loans. I was saving up money working two jobs during my upperclassmen years. And I also had friends who were living and working in New One friend in particular who was living and working in New York City and allowed me to like sleep on her couch Mm. while I interned uh, in the summer for like $60 a week. And sometimes I need to pay that. And so I did it. I did the unpaid internships. I had the Ivy League degree. I, I was studying the right kind of major and I did not get any callbacks. Like, it's to this day where I think about, like, how devastated I was over and over again, spending full days. Like, from Princeton, it takes about 80 minutes to get into Manhattan. You get into Manhattan, it might take another half hour to get to an office. You're in the office, you're in there for 15 minutes. And then you shake their hand and then you leave. And, you know, you go back. But by that time, it's like half the day is gone. And then it's like you don't hear anything. You know, you don't hear you, you don't hear a thing. And then when I came back to South Jersey, my whole day would be gone because it would take 45 minutes for me to get to the boat bus, two two hours and 15 minutes to get to Midtown, the other 30 minutes again, 15 minute long interviews. So it was like emotionally taxing, you know, and just like I'm spending all this money for what? And I think about like when I was interviewing for these jobs, I never shook hands with any other editorial assistant who was not a white woman. There were always white women. And to this day, I'm like, it should not have been that hard. It should not have been. It goes to show you that, and this has to do with my race, obviously, but it's like, it goes to show you that you could be Ivy League educated. You can have a literature-based major. You can do the unpaid internships, but you do, but you can't get a job. I finally got a job in publishing after a year of writing online and and building up my bylines and having people from digital media companies and agents alike follow me on Twitter. That was how I got my, that was, I had to do all of that on top of the academic expertise mm. to be able to come in as an editorial assistant. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I mean, so many in- industries have, have all sorts of issues with gender, with mm-hmm. race, mm-hmm. with um, equality, with privilege. Um, 
you know, publishing is a whole interesting. It's, it's just, it is. It's its own sort of like bizarre universe. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's very small. Yeah. And I didn't feel comfortable talking about what I just disclosed earlier on because I wanted to get a book deal and I didn't want to piss people off. And I'm thankful now that I can be more honest because I feel like I have a little bit more stability with my career. Yeah, but I mean, I, I, I wonder about that though, right? Because in the, I totally get what you're saying. Uh -huh. And at the same time, one of the ways that you ended up, um, it sounds like finally sort of like going and getting an editorial position mm -hmm. was you just started writing on your own. Yeah. You know, and oh, you, yeah. but the stuff that you were writing in that first year or two, you weren't really holding back. I mean, you're it's strong writing. You're right. You're taking positions. Right. But I wasn't talking about the publishing industry. Yeah, I was talking about the true. world right, at right, large. Right, 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 right. So I was never like the publishing industry. Blah, blah. I was yeah. talking about like, no, like stop killing black people. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, you know, it's interesting. Like you're the first person that brought that up. Like I was very, I would say, ferocious, like in terms of my tone a lot of times. But also because it just politically it was, I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement was starting. You're seeing all these police brutality videos. I just... I didn't have the time. I didn't even have the 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 tolerance anymore to sweeten or polish the edges of whatever I wanted to say. Yeah. But and and yet at the same time, you still it's like and I think we all do this, right? It's like if we so so deeply yearn to have this thing that's out there, you know, and if we know that there's still there's still a system of gatekeepers. Yes. Um as much as we can be really strong and opinionated and put our voice out there mm -hmm. in the context of the world at large, mm -hmm. society at large, right? In this one domain where we still want access. It's like, we still were like, should I or shouldn't I? Yeah. 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 I mean- It's such an interesting dynamic. Even after I moved to New York, I was like so upset yeah. because I was like, after I wanted to get a staff writing position so badly. I thought that that was like the pinnacle. Despite the fact that I had published in like, if you could think of like some of the top five to 10 biggest publications in the country, in the world, I was in them. And I was still like, why am I not getting a staff writing position? As if like a position validates all the stuff that I've already been doing. And I had to really just learn to relinquish that for many reasons. And one of it was just like, why are you trying to desire for something that you already have? You desire to, obviously you might desire to make more money, but like you're not failing financially. You're able to pay your rent. You're able to go out and do that. You're trying to get recognition. You do have recognition. I mean, you're getting invited on panels. You're getting invited to do readings. And it's like, if you are privy to anything that's going to digital media, media, it is extremely volatile. Even if you are a staff writer, your job can be slashed tomorrow. Anybody who's in the industry that can tell you that. So it's like, when I'd seen so many of my friends and colleagues alike just being laid off, like just going to work one day and the 9 a.m. the next day, they're being laid off. It really made, it, it really told me as someone who was on the outside, you have to ori reorient your thinking and mm. not try to attach help, happiness or self-validation from anywhere. Yeah. Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new marketing hub enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, use AI to test and optimize, and create more personal 
personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at hubspot.com slash Wondery. That's hubspot.com slash Wondery. So it's hard enough for us grown-ups to limit screen time, not get distracted, losing tons of precious time. So I can't even imagine with millions of online distractions that our kids are dealing with. Fortnite, Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, the list goes on. Well, Circle makes it easy to take childhood offline when needed so that your kids can actually focus on homework, chores, bedtime, having real-life conversations, all those good, juicy things. Circle is the easiest way to manage your family's online time across all their connected devices inside and outside your home. And with Circle Home Plus and the Circle app, parents can actually filter what content is allowed, set limits for screen time and monitor history and usage. You can keep track across every connected device from laptops, phones, tablets, smart TVs, streaming devices, and video game consoles, all in a single app. Each family member has a profile that is fully customizable to their needs, age, and maturity. So you never stop worrying about your kids, but with Circle, you'll have one less thing to worry about. And right now, our listeners, that'd be you, get a limited time offer of $30 off of a Circle Home Plus when you visit meetcircle.com slash goodlife and enter goodlife at checkout. So get $30 off when you visit meetcircle.com slash goodlife and enter goodlife at checkout. This is a limited time podcast exclusive offer. Meetcircle.com slash goodlife and enter goodlife to save $30. So right around this time, I mean, so you're in the industry, you're writing on your own. um, And uh, the next big thing is, okay, so it's, it's book time. Mm -hmm. So you could take in so many different directions Mm -hmm. and, you know, for you, it seems like, okay, so you also, you, you care about your reputation, you care about the industry you care about the craft. So you know that like whatever this debut thing is. It's got a, you know, and you want a, you want a future in yeah. in yeah. this industry, yeah. right? Absolutely. So the debut thing really has to yeah. land. So right. take me behind the scenes a little bit in the decision-making process about choosing to write the book that you chose to write. Well, first, I didn't even want to write nonfiction, ironically. Oh, no I, I mean, I, I went to school for fiction. Right. I started writing fiction, and I had this idea that nonfiction was only for people for two categories of people. People like Malala, who have had these extraordinary lives, or those who were PhD people who had knowledge on something that they'd been studying for 30 to 50 years, not a young 20-something. I didn't really think that that avenue was for me, Mm. and I didn't want to sort of posit myself as a person who just knew it all. You know, it was like I didn't. My agent was the one who suggested to me, maybe you should start with nonfiction because people already knew me for that. And around that time, uh, you know, I, I I remember it was it's so interesting how life works because when I went to go meet my agent for the first time before I before I even signed with her, I had a copy of Bad Feminist in my purse. Mm-hmm. I was reading it en route to the restaurant where I met her in northern New Jersey. And I think when I read Bad Feminist, I was like, even though Roxanne Gay is obviously just a doctor. And she's older than me. I was like, okay, well, maybe there is a space because she's a black woman, and maybe there is my there might be a space for me. Um, and so, 
when when the book sold, which was interesting because I was taking calls from editors probably two days before I graduated from Bennington. Like I was literally on the grassy knolls mm. over Vermont, just like taking calls. And when it sold, I just got to work. I think for me, I have been in many different spaces in and out of publishing. I, you know, I, I write online. I I worked in Catapult. And when I was in the offices at Catapult, I would go to editorial meetings and I'd see so many books go through the pipeline. So the fact that my book was even acquired was a good thing for me. And I also read about debut authors, but most of the stuff that I was reading was not about whether or not, whether your book becomes a success. It's about if your book fails, when mm. you're, when people don't show up to your, your, your readings, your readings um, yeah. when you're, when you're, when your book, uh, uh, is a flop or when you have to take a waitress job. Like I, I, these are the stories that I consumed all the time. So that's not to say that I had a negative, that, that's not to say that the, oh, my book is not going to sell. I just was like, my book, I need to really work, work and work and and promote myself like I've been doing for my shorter form works online so I can have a, a longer career in this industry. And it's weird to talk about it openly now, but my experience with my debut was just wasn't like that. It was actually the complete opposite. Mm. And nobody prepared me for that. And that's not a bad thing, but it's like, what if your book does become a success? Like, what if you do become a New York Times bestseller? What if you do, you know, what if you do go on a month long book tour? You know, what if, you know, when I was in, when I was at, my, when I did my readings across the country, there was no empty seats. Every single store, every single store that I went through, it was at least at half capacity. And it's like, it it was it was shocking to go from Boston all the way to Santa Cruz, California, and to see that. And it's like nobody can nobody prepares you for that. And it's like I wonder if there's a is if there's a space to talk about that too, without bragging. You know, I always have this you know worry that I'm bragging when it's like, but it's the truth. It it's not, and I don't take for granted how my experience was. I still think about it. And I'm like, whoa, did that really happen? Yeah. I think the industry is just, it's so filled with, it is, I mean, populated largely by failure. I mean, it's an industry which is defined by the vast majority of, of people um, who are writing don't support themselves full-time as writers. Mm-hmm. Um, if they write a book, if they get a book deal, which seems to be the aspiration for everybody, the vast majority of books completely outright fail. You know, like a handful of books do okay. And then the really rare book does, you know, it just exceptionally well. So it's almost like I wonder if there's a lot of talk you know, among the writing community and among the publishing community around dealing with failure because you almost want to just expect that so that if and when it happens, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're not devastated and you don't just completely stop writing. Right. Whereas people just assume that if the opposite happens, like you'll know what to do and right. it'll be good. And right. also like you said, it's like there's there's an assumption that it's maybe it's arrogant to assume that, yeah. that I'm the one right, right. who actually has the chops or whatever it may be, the fortune, the timing right, to be right. the breakout person. Absolutely. And the thing is, it's like, did I have dreams that I, that you know, what if my book, the New York Times bestsellers? Yeah, I thought about it. I'm sure every author would think, like, what if that did happen? But I tried to push it in the back of my mind as much as possible because I was like, at the end of the day, even the, the promo, the buzz surrounding my book was like anything else I'd ever seen. Yeah. And so that was, I mean, I just had to tell myself, you have to just surrender 
you surrender. Like I had to tell myself, did I do enough promo on my end? Did the publicity team at Harper Perennial do what did what they had to do? Absolutely. And just had to wait. Yeah. So the name of the book, this will be my undoing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a collection of essays, mm -hmm. right? So 10, from what I remember correctly, right? 10, 11? 10. 10, right. It's deeply personal. And it's, it's, it's almost like, yes, it's a collection of essays, mm -hmm. But it's also kind of, it's it's a lot of memoir. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's not just you picking a topic and saying, mm -hmm, here's what I think mm -hmm, on a topic. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of deeply personal stuff. And it's interesting to be sitting here with you mm -hmm. also. So I read it and I'm a 53-year-old mm -hmm. white cisgender male, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Not the person I think you wrote the book for. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because it's like, and I was having this conversation last night. when When people ask me, who did you write this book for? I always wonder if like, if white authors get the same question. And that's no offense to you. It's just yeah. like, because when you are a person of color, there's always this expectation to be as universal as possible. And I think that's so interesting because being in America, we know that predominantly the TV shows we watch, the movies we consume are white people. I, as a you know South New Jersey born and raised girl can completely empathize with, a white person in Kentucky because I see that on TV. I don't have a choice, you know, but it's like, well, can somebody empathize with me? Can somebody understand what I'm going through, the motivations for why I thought this way and to understand that we don't all exist in a vacuum. So even when I was writing my book proposal and they were like, well, who's this for? And I was like, oh, millennials, black women. I'm like, you know, trying to be specific. But a part of me was like, I just want to say everyone and not be difficult, but it's the truth because it's like, I, I absorb books by all different types of authors. I've had to, and so many of them didn't look like me. And I had to do that in order to be considered literate, to be able to go into the next grade, et cetera, et cetera. And I want people to be able to devote 200 something pages of my book, learning it and being literate in me. And hopefully being literate in other types of works by other Black women and understand that they can pass it off to another white person. It doesn't have to be another Black woman. It can be for whoever likes to read as well. You know? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and it's interesting because um, my focus in the question was more, um, it was less white versus Black. It yeah, was yeah, more yeah. like male and middle-aged Oh, male. yeah. Well, same because, thing. Because and, and I agree. So, like, I'm in a really fortunate position. Mm -hmm. I get to sit down with so many mm -hmm, incredible mm -hmm, people, mm -hmm. and I could care less. Uh -huh. Like, I want, to, I want to read the most diverse and broad set of experiences that I can, mm -hmm. because it's all about, fundamentally, it comes down to the human condition. And if I can understand the human condition better, you know, then, and if I can introduce our listeners to a, a wide, just you know, the gathering of people from every walk of life, it just helps us all understand each other on a completely different level. Completely agree. So it's interesting because I, what was interesting for me was what I was noticing as I was reading your book was as a middle-aged male, I was resonating so deeply with it. And I was wondering within me, what was it that was resonating so deeply with me? I'm also a father of a daughter. Yeah. And I, I think that's probably part of it also, mm -hmm. but you share some experiences um, within these essays. One of them, which kind of starts off the book, is um, an experience when you were pretty young with the cheerleaders. Yeah. Can you share a bit about that? Yeah, that absolutely. Like, I grew up thinking that cheerleaders were the pinnacle of beauty. The movies that I watched, they the, the most popular girl in school was a cheerleader. And she was usually white and she was usually blonde. And I did not think that I was an attractive person at all. I did not believe growing up, 
more people complimented me on my intelligence more so than my beauty. And, but, you know, even as your girl, even as, you know, nine, 10 years old, you still want to be pretty. I mean, I have a four-year-old niece that feels like she's not going to be able to be pretty without makeup. You know what I'm saying? So I tried out for the cheerleading squad and, you know, it was an all-white cheerleading squad. And I remember I was trying so hard. I mean, I, I was trying, you know, just practicing the moves and all of that. And I I tried for the squad and, and nobody... and. No black girl makes it. It was like me and two other black girls, I think. And we both tried out. None, neither of us made it. And, you know, I was devastated. And my mother and another black mother knew what was going on. They were like, we want to talk to the administration about this. I didn't even know what this meant. And a couple of days later, maybe weeks later, I was having an argument with another girl, girl of color. And she basically said, like, do you know, like, why you didn't make the team? It's because monkeys, like, you don't make the team. And that was... That just shattered. It's one thing to shattered me. Like it's one thing to be in a conversation with someone you're going back and forth. But there's always that like one hit or quitter I say that someone says, but you're like, I can't even respond to that. Like I just can't. And I think that that's so traumatic. That was, and I knew I wanted to tell that story because I remember it just like it was yesterday. I remember the, the being at night. I remember the types of food that certain people brought. To, you know, to sit outside in the corridors of the school, the school hallways, to wait for the for the people to come out and say who made the team and. um I try to tell people all the time, like, don't you think that is the most devastating? That's one of the most, that's one of the saddest things in the world for a black girl to know that she's black by being compared to an animal. That was how I knew that I was black. Like, I knew I was black in the sense that I looked at my mother, my grandmother, and, you know, we were different shades of brown. But I knew I was black in the world to the entry point of being an animal. And that is the saddest thing, I think, ever. And that's what I wanted people to understand. And so when someone like you, who is, you know, a middle-aged white man says it resonated with me because you saw my humanity. Mm. You see, you saw that, like, you didn't question, maybe you just weren't good enough. You didn't say to yourself, well, you know, maybe the other girls were just better. You understood why I thought that way. I'm thankful for conversations like that. I'm also proud of myself because I tell people all the time, you don't have to agree with me, but if you can understand the motivations or the societal forces at work for me to understand why I felt that way or my, why I made the decision to do X, Y, and Z, I've accomplished what I said I'd do as a writer. I think the best writers in the world, like I love when I watch movies and let's say if it's like good versus evil, obviously this isn't that type of story, but if let's say if it's good versus evil and we are set up to believe the villain is bad, but then we look at the backstory and we're like, Oh, okay. So we kind of see what happened. Those are the best stories. It's like you don't probably have to agree with who they became, who they chose to become, but you understand why they became it. You understand the motivations for, or the foundation for why they turned and, and chose this path. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like that's the seed of compassion, right? Yeah, that's it. That's that's the thing. It's like as as a as a you know as a black woman and as a writer, I'm like have compassion for me for being vulnerable enough to talk about this, even if it makes you uncomfortable, even if you don't necessarily agree. If you have compassion for me, that is something that I don't take for granted because so much of the world presently and historically do not have compassion for people who look like me. Mm. When, when that moment happens and it kind of brings you to your knees, mm. are, you, are you aware of you being in some way different? living in the world, experiencing the world, experiencing relationships differently after that moment? If you go back to, you know, like that when your friend drops this one line. Um, 
You know what? It's it's interesting again because no one no one's asked me that, but I think I was hurt, and I think for one to two weeks, you know, we didn't talk, whatever, and then we just continued being friends. Mm. So much of my life has been characterized by someone doing something to me, and then I just get over it because I don't want to sit in that pain. I want to have friends. I want to make connect connections, often at the expense of my mental health. So I just kept going. It wasn't until I wrote the book that I was like, man, that is traumatic. Yeah, you really man, that was it. terrible. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And that's the, hence the title of my book, This Will Be My Undoing. It wasn't supposed to evoke sort of a bad omen. What it was meant to evoke was reversal, being able to go back to these memories that I just know so viscerally, that I feel so viscerally within my body and finally be able to... To to just to remain in them a little bit longer and not try to run away and jump to a different conversation or a different topic. Yeah, and kind of say, okay, so what really, what was really happening here? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you also reflect on something which happened a little bit later in one of the essays, which is uh, once you got into um, high school, there was some pretty serious bullying. Oh yeah, and it's it's an interesting conversation, an interesting story, um, because. One of the, and it kind of reflects a lot of the through line of this book also, which is that you clearly made a decision to write what you were feeling, mm-hmm. even if what you were feeling, like people may look at that as they read it mm-hmm. and they're like, that's not okay to, like, that's, how can you say that? How can you feel that? Mm-hmm. But you made a decision to say like, no, like I, I was bullied and I wanted this bad thing to happen. Mm-hmm. Person. And people got so mad at me for that. Yeah. People got so mad at me. I've I've had literally people ask me, well, not people ask me to my face, but like assume that the way that I felt at 14 is the same way that I feel in my mid-20s. And I'm like, that is just preposterous yeah. for you to assume that someone cannot train that like cannot change in a decade. But I know where that was coming from because they may not have ever seen someone be or read of someone being that honest. Yeah. Let's tell people what we're talking about okay. also. Um, in terms of the scenario. Yeah. Um, so the pushback I think was in part because so you were bullied by another woman, mm-hmm. black woman, mm-hmm. who you perceived to be different still mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. 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 D- describe a little bit more. So basically every day, like pretty much I was bullied by this one girl and I didn't understand why. I was like, why is she bullying me? I don't, we're not friends. We sat at the same lunch table. I was like, I'm not doing anything to her. But I also knew that I had been raised to be respectable and she was not. I was raised to dress a certain way. My mother tried to dress me in the preppiest of clothes. My mother, you know, I I was in honors classes. The girl that, you know, you know, I, I was raised in a middle upper middle class environment, pretty much for the vast majority of my life. And the girl that was bullying me, she wasn't any of my honors classes. She was not like the mannerisms and gestures that she had, like being very loud, being very assertive. That was not, all of that was not, I was meant to suppress all of that. So we were just polar opposites of each other. And even at 14 years old, like one of the things that sort of kept me it was because I just thought that Society, like in in society, I was just better. I was just gonna be better because I had the socioeconomic privilege. I was being respectable, and I wanted, like I told, like I think I wrote that I had a fantasy of like just calling the police on her. 
I was like, she is harassing the hell out of me, excuse me. And I would just like for nothing more than to like a policeman, a police officer to tackle her and to like to watch her be humiliated because I can't do it. And I was like, terrible. And I was like, this is terrible. And I even write it like that is a terrible thought. But when you are, when you're traumatized, when you are, when you saying, talking about the entryway point of you being a black girl through thinking that you're an animal and that stays with you, you become anti-black. You become anti-black girl. And that showed not through my actions, but through my thoughts. And that's why I had those feelings towards her, that even though she still bullied me, even though I never did anything to her, I still was like, I want something terrible to happen to her. And I just thought because of, you know, I was taught to, taught to assimilate to white people better, that she would be more on the outs than me. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, and in that conversation, like when you write about it, you come full circle even like then. Uh-huh. But it's interesting to know that you got so much pushback. I got pushback. When back. the book came out, because I, I mean, it, this was, we all think horrible things when we're like right. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Yes. Days. And God willing, we are not the same. Like we evolve, we right. change, we find compassion, right. we find like dignity right. and respect for other people. And yes. And to hold you, it's interesting that people didn't allow space for that evolution. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I know that there are certain people of the, of the you know, and it's funny because Here's the phenomenon. People, you can have a person, you can have two people read the same essay and come away with different things. I've spoken to some black women who said, I read what you wrote and you literally say like, it was terrible. And I went full circle and you have other people like, oh, well, she felt this way and she, you know, da, da, da. It's like, one, I'm, I have to remind myself that once I release something in the world, I have no control over anymore. You're allowed to think whatever you want to think. But also... Part of me is like, well, I want to defend my own work. And it's like, well, did you read the entire essay? Because if you just read that one paragraph, of course you're going to think that. But it's like, at 14 years old, I had no concept. I had no really larger concept of systemic racism, had no idea about police brutality, racial policing, the history of that with Black community, especially towards Black women. I had no, I was 14 years old. So it was like, of course, because like I was writing about the Black Lives Matter movement, like to think that I still think that way, to assume that is like is just dangerous. And I think the heart and the thing is, is that we all have horrible thoughts. And I did. I was afraid to write that essay. I didn't want to write that essay, but mm-hmm. I had to tell myself. I commend Black women who grew up loving their Black girlhood, their Black womanhood throughout the entirety of their lives. That is not my story. That doesn't make me any less black woman than you. I had to come from a place of self-hatred. And you see that self-hatred. And we have to have space for black women to say, hey, like, I didn't like myself at first because that's what the world did to me. It wasn't my fault. Nobody gave that to me. So if I made people uncomfortable with that, good because it is uncomfortable and it's disgusting. And I can read that part and it still is like, oh, but that's where I was at the time because I was dealing with a lot of pain, a lot of unresolved pain. And I can tell you now that I don't have that anymore, that I've healed in more ways than one. But if people are still stuck on me as a 14 years old with that, I have nothing else to say. I can't. I can't say anything else with that. So I think I, I think I might actually need to come up with some kind of ever lame theme song because I love these guys. Pretty much 
Everything Everlane is about is pretty awesome. That's why I talk about them, but also because of their commitment to making something great while respecting the people and the environment along the way. So Everlane makes only premium essentials and without traditional markups. Their clothes, they last longer, they feel great. And because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are actually about 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. And Everlane is radically transparent which is super cool. They have responsible sourcing ethical factories that they work with, and they actually tell you where your clothes come from, how they're made, and how they price each item. My sort of everyday Everlay jam is their jeans, their black v-neck t-shirt, their hoodie, and more recently, I'm actually really loving their new trainers. Everlane is kind of on a mission to make the world's most sustainable sneakers and designing them to last a really long time and be completely carbon neutral in the way that they actually create them. Everlane's timeless essential no frills, just quality. You're going to love them as much as I do. And right now you can check out our personalized collection at everlane.com slash goodlife. Plus you'll get free shipping on your first order. That's everlane.com slash goodlife, everlane.com slash goodlife, or just click the link in the show notes. It's interesting too, because you share a conversation that happened later. What was this? Um, Shortly after after graduating college, mm-hmm, right, it's mm-hmm. under the essay. Um, was it called um, "Human Not Black"? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Which, which kind of ties in a different way yeah. into this whole thing. Share yes. a bit more about that moment. So, you know, I I was invited to have lunch with a woman who I became close with in uh, in college. She was in one, the academic department which I was studying, and uh, she had Eastern Europe. She's Eastern European descent, and she had an uncle and aunt who wanted to meet me. And, you know, I met them. They were really nice people. And, you know, I was regaling them with my conversations, my experiences at Princeton, going to Russia, Japan, et cetera, et cetera. And the man says to me, like, you know, I I, I don't understand why you would even call yourself a black, I'm paraphrasing, like, I don't even understand why you would call yourself a black woman. You don't, you don't present to me as a black woman. So why don't you just say human? And I'm like, this is what I'm talking about, is that, you're just seen as respectable. And it's like, well, then why do you have to be, what is your, and I wish I could have said, what was your idea of a black, how am I supposed to present as a black woman? But I didn't want to make anyone uncomfortable at the dinner table, at the dining room table. So yeah, it kind of, it does play off of that. Yeah. I mean, um, what an uncomfortable moment for you also, because like you're in the home of somebody who's a yeah. friend and a mentor. Right. And at the and- same time, like there's, there's probably a conversation you really would have loved to have had. I the context have. is different. Right. And and it's funny because I just, I was giving a speech at the University of Michigan, Dearborn, and there was a white uh, female student who asked me, if you could do that moment over, what mm-hmm. would you have done? And I said, I wouldn't do that moment over because anytime I feel like I want to get on my soapbox and talk about intersectionality and the like, I always look around the room and say, who's going to have my back if I go there? And there was no one else at that moment who looked like me. And that's not to say that just because you don't like me doesn't mean you won't support me. However, there was no one else in the room that I was getting sense from that was like, well, you know, back up a little bit. Because when he when he went, when he started talking like that, no one was like, no, like that's wrong. So once I got that, I was like, I was kind of on my own. That's even though everybody was nice and everybody was just trying to, you know, have a good time. I was like, no, I wouldn't change that moment because who's going to have my back? I don't want to always be the only one, you know, in my own corner. This work is for everybody. Yeah. One or the other, I mean, sort of touching down in some of the other areas mm-hmm. of uh, of the book, 
one of the chapters I thought was um, really powerful, both in terms of what you said, but also the structure. How, mm-hmm. to, how to be docile was that the yeah, name of it, right? Yeah. Um, it was interesting because it's like a bullet point list, essentially. Mm-hmm. One, I'm curious, like, what's in your mind when you're thinking, okay, this is my debut book. You know, like I'm writing these really beautifully crafted essays. I'm going to have this one thing, which is essentially just, it, it's a list. You know, like I'm curious about the the choice of rolling with that format. And then the bigger thing, just tell me what was that about and what was the intention behind it? So I was going through a rough time dating at the time. I was dealing with a lot of emotionally unavailable men and wondering if like whether they were intimidated by me because of my success or whether I was just too emotional, too talkative, too opinionated. And I was speaking to an an aunt of mine, um, my aunt has been divorced for years, and she was like, you know what? Next time you go on a date, just be docile and see what happens. And I don't know. I think she was being sarcastic, but it really stuck with me. In fact, I think it was that same night or the following morning, I just wrote that essay. And I was just trying to be as satirical as possible. And I did not think my ed- my editors were going to let me keep it, but it just felt really good to oh, no write. Kidding. You just, yeah, was no. like, let me just get this out. Yeah, no, yeah. And I was like, I'll include it for them. But if they say no, I'm like, all right, I just needed to get it. I just felt good. You know, it's like the like if you think about the painter that just goes back to their studio and just starts, you know, going with the, just going crazy with the colors. That's just how I was. Mm, yeah. Um, switching energy a little bit. Um, you love Michelle Obama. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. So you devote essentially, you know, like a solid chunk of, of an essay in a book, kind of like to a love letter <laughs> to her. What is it about who she is and what she represents that you feel is was compelling where you're like, I, I need to I need to speak to her and to this? Yeah, you know what? I think about when Barack Obama, when it was called that he was going to be president and then he went on on stage with Obama and, you know, Sasha Malia were like so small then. And I think I just remember like, a tear falling from my face, from my eyes, I guess. And I was mainly looking at her. I wasn't even looking at him, even as he was speaking. And I was just like, you know, she's the most famous woman in the world now. Like she's she's the first lady of the United States. And who would have thought that such a thing would happen? You know, growing up, I used to watch a lot of black comedians and they would make jokes about, you know, the first black president, but we it was always with like, this is never going to happen. Or if he's a first black president, he's going to, he's going to get assassinated. And I think when I thought about Michelle was like, because she gave me so much life in the midst of that fear that something was going to go wrong, despite all of the egregious insults that she had to go through throughout the years despite, you know, just the the stress of being in that new position, she did it with so much grace. I think anybody else probably would have cracked under that much pressure. And so I felt like writing about Black womanhood, writing about privilege, and also the fact that we, we, you know, I went to Princeton just like she did, and she was, she was exalted, almost like a mythical figure. So, I've had that connection in that way. And so I just wanted to, to, you know, to write something to her because she just took on something very personal for me. And I'm sure for a lot of other Black women as well. Yeah. So zooming the lens out, you know, a lot of, if you sort of like looking at this and a lot of your current writing in the book and just like around the book is in what people might sort of like put under the category of intersectional feminism. Yeah. And part of what you write about also is how... um, the black woman's experience of feminism is different. Mm-hmm. Talk to me more about that. Well, because fem- mainstream feminism is very white women centered. 
or, you know, it's like they'll talk about women and it's like black women are such an afterthought. And so that was my, that was the thing about it is like, oftentimes I'm, I have to just choose between my womanhood and my blackness. Like if we're talking about our, uh, Bill Cosby, for example, you can have black men that are black. They're trying to take a black man down. It's like, well, what about the women? What about the black women in your family or in your community who have been sexually assaulted? Or when we're talking about feminist issues, it's like, why is it always the white woman at the front? So I got to put my blackness on the back burner. So like, why can't we, why can't you see that I can't divide myself in that way? Black women can't divide themselves in that way. And so when I think about Black women's experience with feminism, it is it's a very multi-layered thing because, you know, Black women have been fighting for women's rights for years, for years and years and years, but they've often been kept out of the mainstream arena. And so I think that the relationship that Black women have with feminism, it depends on who you talk to because you might have some Black women that are like, I consider myself a womanist, which is like Black women-centered. And you have someone like, I'm a feminist, but I want to make it clear these all these different disclaimers because it, the relationship can be very fraught a lot of times. Mm. Do you, I mean, is it something that, I know you speak about it and you write about it. Has your thought, I mean, do you see anything, do you feel like anything has changed in, in this context over the last really just handful of years? More Black women are speaking up. I mean, yeah. I remember the hashtags in 2014. Man, I feel like there could be a long-form article about that. Yeah. Like, just like the hashtag solidarity is for white women, the hashtag, like, not your Asian sidekick. Like, you had it just... And it would go on for days, just people talking about, for the first one, like, not, you know, solidarity is for white women. Like, just people talking about what white women do at the expense of others, you know, under the guise of innocence and the guise of ignorance. Being more vocal, yeah. Like, I just... And and that's because of the internet, I suppose. And, you know, with the advent of Twitter, like, to be able to have these different conversations and be able to destabilize these barriers between, like, the language you'd use for feminism, like the academy versus, you know, just on the stoop talking to someone. So they'll, they'll, that's been exciting. Yeah. Um, hashtags also. Um, you're a fan of Twitter. Yeah, I'm very much <laughs> a fan of Twitter. What does it give you? Oh my God, that's such a complicated question now because I have a very different relationship with it now yeah. than when I did five years ago. So I tell people all the time, I, I owe the like the hu a huge chunk of my career to Twitter. I was able to find editors' contacts and then pitch them and be able to build a portfolio through Twitter. I met my agent through Twitter. The acquiring editor for my book was through Twitter. Mm -hmm. So I owe that to Twitter and just like the conversations. But my relationship with Twitter now, it's like I have to have a little bit of distance on it, even while I, distance from it, even while I'm on it. And what I mean by that is, you know, Twitter could be a very evil place. And I think I noticed that the more public I became, and I just know that there can be a lot of performative cruelty, you know, especially when people are trying to work out their ideas or whatever. And I had to remind myself that Twitter is full of real people, but it is not real life. And a lot of times it could be an echo chamber. And I have to remind myself that, you know, I don't know a huge amount of these people and they don't know me. We're not friends. So I have to make sure that everything needs to be taken with a grain of salt at the same time. And I think before in the beginning, I didn't have that 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 healthy separation of boundaries there. Yeah. And I also get concerned. I mean, completely agree. And I see that um, that, you know, the minute you put a screen between two human beings, especially two human beings or strangers, but for the fact that one person is interacting like through a Twitter account with another one, 
there is like a substantial loss of humanity that happens. Because it's so you easy. You would say things on Twitter that you would never say to somebody right. who's just sitting with them face to face, even if they were strangers. Right. I remember Lindy West. I'll never forget this. this Lindy West, she was on a, a, an episode of American Life where she actually had a conversation with one of her biggest trolls. I'm talking about a troll who had the audacity to try to imp- maybe like impersonate her, her dead father or something like that. And you know what he told her? He said, God, I was just miserable with my life. And she handled it really well because if that were me, Oh, I, I, I would have been, I would have been so vicious with that. But it's, but that's how I tell myself a lot of times on Twitter, people are dealing with a lot of unresolved pain and they project it on other people, whether it's a troll or whether it's just some random person making fun of an article that you wrote. And I have to remind myself that I am not responsible for that. I am doing my work through Mm -hmm. writing and through therapy and through communing with people who love me. I can't say that everybody else is doing the same. That is my hot take for the day. Yeah. Um, Therapy. Talk to me about that. (laughs) I mean, therapy is just like... It has been monumental for me. I just learned the tools and you know through which to be okay with having negative emotions, okay with telling somebody that they hurt me. And I don't think I've never really been taught to say that. Okay with telling people like, hey, being communicative and saying like, this is what I need. This is what I desire. Not having a feeling that like someone's going to desert me for that. And if they do, then I mean, that's even better, you know? So I think therapy has been helpful because everybody just needs some help. We go through a lot. Like our bodies and our, our minds take beatings. And sometimes we can't do it alone. Sometimes we need a person to give us apparatuses through which to work through it. And that's why I'm, I was so happy that I, you know, I decided to take that leap to do it. Yeah. Do you ever wonder, because I've heard this from different people, whether the painters or writers, but I think I hear it from writers more, especially writers who came to writing in the beginning a lot, kind of like as their form of therapy, where they, they're like, okay, so, but if I go in and I, and I do therapy or self-care or some blend, whatever it is where I get myself okay through other means mm-hmm. that... um I'm no longer going to have that sort of like raw material, level of angst and raw material to process through my craft. So I'm not going to be able to create stuff, which is as raw, as meaningful, as compelling anymore. That's not true. I don't believe that. Yeah, I don't either. I don't believe it. I think the thing is, is that, well, one, I would say, not everything you write has to be about pain. Yeah. And I think that that's what I, 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 I want people to understand is that, what I'm experiencing now in my own life is the other side of it, the mm. healing, the, the 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 spiritual grounding, and no one prepares you for that, right? And it's like I have to employ a new language or maybe just further elaboration on old language because I've been doing the mental work. And so I think that, you know, for people to assume that if I don't take care of myself, because that's really what they're saying. If I don't take care of myself, I won't be able to use my best work. It's like that, It's it doesn't come from them. I think that is almost like a societal mm. expectation. Just like with people who are mad, and people think that people who, who have mental issues are geniuses. And yes, there are a lot of what we consider geniuses that have had mental issues, but mental health issues, excuse me. But that doesn't, you know, just because you have something bad going on doesn't mean, oh, this is going to be perfect art. But we have seen throughout, you know, history, people making great art from pain. But I think you have to do, you have to be, basically I tell people you have to want to stay alive. Yeah. That's at the bottom. And you can't do any work if you're not alive. And that's just not physically. That That's also in your head too. You have to be engaging and being active. 
And so I think for people who are afraid, like, what if I don't have that edge anymore? You will find an edge through a different style, one that is sustainable, one that is healthier, one that is going to be more nourishing than what you were doing before. But you have to be okay. It's just like with starting a new project. You have to be okay with that blank slate. You have to be okay with that new territory. You have to be okay to just be like, I'm going to explore this new terrain for a while and see what happens. Yeah, I I so agree. Um, Trying to remember who taught me this. Um, It was years ago, probably. You know, that it's not like what draws people in and is not the fact that you're sharing, that it's like a big shared pain. It's the fact that you're you're sharing a scenario where expectation and reality don't meet. And the story lies in there. And like that gap is where people get drawn in. And sometimes that gap is defined by pain. Sometimes it's defined by love, by compassion, mm-hmm. by service, by transcendence. You know, like it's not, it's less about the sort of like the driving emotion or whether they're suffering. It's more about the fact that that gap exists, that there is some surprise. There's a gap between what you expected to happen and the truth of what's actually happening and how you fill that gap is -hmm. what really draws people in. You don't have to create pain or endure suffering Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. make it compelling. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. So um, as we start to come full circle, are you working on your next one now? Yes. How does it feel to be working on the second book after having such a major debut? Good. Yeah. I want to keep working. I I never I never get comfortable. I'm like, listen, they took a ch- Harper took a chance on me again, and they're gonna get another fine book, and I have to make sure of that because um, that's an investment. <laughs> but it feels good because I like working. I've always been that type. I'm never like type where it's like, even when I when I, I remember when I got published in like a publication that I wanted to be in for so long, I was already revising another piece. I just, I'm, I'm, I am trained to hustle. It's just my mode. (laughs) Just my mode. So it feels good to have something else to be working on and also to flex my skills. Like my next book is going to involve so much more reportage, so much more historical research, you know, incorporated into personal narratives. Mm. So that's, it, it, it. it's like, I feel like I am, I am maturing as a writer in tandem with me maturing as a person. And yeah. it feels really good. Nah, I love that. Um, do you still have fiction in you somewhere? Oh yeah, no, I have a novel too. So it was yeah. a two book deal. So doing narrative nonfiction next and then the novel. Ah, okay. very cool. Oh, I can't read you. Yeah. Awesome. I'm very happy about that. Cause I'm like, finally, yeah, my 14 like, year old self was like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I get to just completely make up something. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Super cool. Mm-hmm. So as we sit here in the container of this good life project, if I offer out the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? To live a good life is to be vulnerable and be okay with heartbreak because you know that the risk will yield great returns somewhere. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E 
typ.com or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.